welcome to the Frontside Podcast, the place where we talk about user interfaces and everything that you need to know to build them right. It's been a long summer and uh, we're back. I'm actually back living in Austin, Texas again. I think it was, uh, there wasn't too much margin in terms of time to record anything or do much else besides kind of hang on for survival. We've been really, really busy uh, over the last couple months, um, especially on you know the professional side. Frontside has been doing some pretty uh, extraordinary things, some pretty interesting things. Um, so we've got a lot to chew on, a lot to talk about. There's so much stuff to talk about and <laughs> it's hard to know where to start. <laughs> so we'll be a little bit rambly, a little bit focused. Uh, we'll call it family. But I think one of the kind of the key points that is crystallized in our minds, I would say over this summer is something that binds the way that we work together. You know, every once in a while you do, you do some work, you do some work, you do some work. And then all of a sudden you realize that, you know, a theme, there's something thematic to that work and it bubbles up to the surface and you kind of organically perceive an abstraction over the way that you work. Uh, I think we've hit that or hit one of those points at least because you know one of the things that's very important for us is and if you've ever you know if you know us this is things that we talk about things that we work on is you know we will go into a project and set up the deployment on the very first day make sure that there is an entire pipeline making sure that there is a test suite making sure that you know there are preview applications and this is kind of the mode that we've been working in, I mean, for years and years and years and where, you know, you say like if what it takes is spending the first month of a project setting up your entire delivery and showcasing pipeline, then that's the most important work. Inverting the order and saying that has to really come before any code can come before it. And I don't know that we've ever had like a kind of unifying theme for all of those practices. I mean, we've talked about it in terms of saving money, in terms of ensuring quality, in terms of making sure that, you know, something is good for five or 10 years. Like this is the way to, to, to do it. And I think those are definitely the outcomes that we're looking for. But I think we've kind of identified what the actual mode is is for all of that is that uh is that fair to say yeah i think uh, one of the things i've always thought about for a long time is uh, the context within which decisions are made because it's not always easy and it's sometimes really difficult to like really give it a name like getting to a point where you have really clear understanding of what is it that is guiding all of your actions what is it that's making you do things like like why do we put a month of work before we even start doing any work why do we put this in our contract why do we say have a conversation with every client and say look before we start doing anything we're going to put ci ci in place why are we blocking our business on doing this piece like it's actually kind of crazy that from a business perspective it's a little bit crazy that you'd be like oh so you're willing to lose a client because the client doesn't want you to set up set up a ci process or like you know, in, in the case of uh, many clients, it's like you're not willing to accept that, it, you know, client is going to say, I'm going to, we, we want to use Jenkins. And what we've done in the past is that in almost every engagement, we're like, you know, actually, no, we're not going to use Jenkins because we know that it's going to take so long for you to put Jenkins in place that by the time that we're like finished the project, you're probably still not going to have it in place. That means that we've actually not, we're not going to be able to rely on our CI process and we're not going to be able to rely on testing 
until you're finished. Uh, like we're not able to have any of those things while we're doing development. Uh, but why are we doing all this stuff, right? It was actually not really apparent until very recently uh, because it never really had a name to describe like what is it about this tooling and all of these things that makes, why is it so important to us? I think that's what, like, I think that what's kind of crystallized and the way that I know that it's crystallized because now that we're talking to our clients about it, our clients are taking on the picking up the language. We don't have to convince people that this is a value. They just, they just, like, it just comes out of their mouth. Like, it actually comes out of their mouth as a solution to completely unrelated problems, but they recognize how this particular thing is actually a solution in that particular circumstance as well, even though it's not something front side sold in that particular situation. Mm-hmm. So do you wanna do you wanna <laughs> do you wanna announce what it actually is? <laughs> well sure. I can, you know, drum roll please, not to get too hokey, but it's something that we're calling transparent development. And what it means is having radical transparency throughout the entire development process, from the planning to the design to the actual coding and to the releases, like everything about your process, the measure by which you can evaluate it is how transparent is this process to not just developers, but other stakeholders, designers, or people who are you know, very developer adjacent, engineering managers, all the way up to you know, C-level executives. How transparent is your development? And one of the ways that we sell this, because I, I think you know, as we talk about how we arrived at this concept, we can see how this practice actually is a mode of thinking that guides you towards each one of these individual practice. It guides you towards continuous integration. It guides you towards testing. It guides you towards the continuous deployment. It guides you towards the continuous release and preview. I think the most important thing is that it's guided us by capturing this concept. It's guided us to adopt new practices, which we did not have before. That's where the proof is in the pudding, is if you can take an idea and it shows you things that you hadn't previously thought before. I think there's a fantastic example. I actually saw it at Closure Conj uh, in 2016. There was a talk on juggling. And one of the things that they talked about was up until I think it was the early 80s or maybe it was the early 60s, the state of juggling was, you know, you knew a bunch of tricks and you practice the tricks and you get these hard tricks. And, you know, that was what juggling was. As you practice these things, it was very satisfying. And it had been like that for several millennia. But what they, these guys in the um, physics department were juggling enthusiasts. And I don't know how the conversation came about. You have to watch the talk. It's actually, it's, it, it's really a great talk. But what they do is they make a writing system and nomenclature system for systematizing juggling tricks. So they can describe any juggling trick with this abstract notation. And the surprising outcome, or not so surprising outcome, is that by then, once you have it in the notation, you can manipulate the notation to reveal new tricks that nobody had thought of before. But you're like, ah, by capturing the timing and the height and the hand, and we can actually, we understand the fundamental concept, and so now we can recombine it in ways that weren't fine and weren't seen before. That actually opened up, you know, I I think an order of magnitude of new tricks that people just had not conceived of before because they did not know that they were, they existed. And so I think that's really, as an abstract concept, is a great yardstick by which to measure any idea is, okay, yes, this idea very neatly explains the 
phenomenon with which I'm already familiar, but does the idea guide me towards things with which I have no concept of their existence, but because the idea predicts their existence, I know it must be there and I know where to look for it. And aha, there it is. You know, you, it, it's like shining a light. And so I think that that's kind of the, the proof in the pudding. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but I think that's why we're so excited about this. And I think it's why we think it's a good idea. Yes. So what's also been interesting for me is that how universal it is, right? Because it, the question of you know, like, is this transparent enough? That question could be actually asked in many cases. What's been interesting for me is that asking that question in different contexts that I didn't expect actually yielded better outcome. At the end of the day, I think that's a test for any idea is like, is it something that can help you more frequently than not? Like, is it actually leading you like it does applying this pattern? Does it increase the chances of success? And that's one of the things that we've seen, you know, thinking about just, you know, practices that we're putting into place and, you know, quite asking like, are they transparent enough? Is this transparent enough? It's actually been mm -hmm. really effective. Uh, do you want to talk to some of the things that we've put in place uh, in regards to transparency? Like what it actually looks like? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this originally started when we were setting up a CI pipeline for a native application, um, which is not something that we've typically done in the past. Over the last, I would say, 10 years, most of our work has been on the web. And so, but, you know, when we're asked to essentially take responsibility for how a native application uh, is going to be delivered, one of the first things that we ask, kind of out of habit and out of just uh, the way that we operate is, how are we going to deliver this? How are we going to test it? How are we going to integrate it? You know, all the things that we've just talked about is something that we have to do naturally but because this is not very, like continuous integration and build is very prevalent on the web. I think that testing still has a lot of progress on the web, but it's far more prevalent than it is in other communities, certainly the native community. So, you know, when we started spending a month setting up continuous integration, uh, an integration test suite, spending time working on simulators so that we could simulate Bluetooth, having an automated process with which we could ship to the app store. All of these things kind of existed as one-offs in the native development community. Like there are a lot of native developers who do these things, but because it's not as prevalent and because it was new to us, it caused a lot of self-reflection, both on why is it that we feel compelled to do this? And also we had to express this. We had to really justify this work to existing native development teams and existing stakeholders who were responsible for the outcomes of these native development teams, right? So, so there was this period of, of, of self-reflection. Like we had to really, you know, we had to, to write down and ironically be transparent about why we were doing this. Yeah, it's, 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 so we, you know, we had to describe that in SOWs, right? So we actually had really long write-ups about like, you know, what it is that we're setting up. And for a while it was people, I think, would read these, you know, SOWs and they would like, I think they would get the, the what's, uh, you know, of what we're actually going to be putting into place. But it wasn't until we actually put it into place and we've seen a few like really big 
big wins with this setup, right? One, I think one of the first one, first ones was the setting up preview apps, where preview apps in uh, the web are pretty straightforward because you've got Netlify that just kind of gives it to you like easily. And mm-hmm. Netlify, Heroku, like it's it's there's you, it's just it's very common. Yeah, you activate it and it's there. But on the on the web, there is uh, oh sorry on the on mobile side, it's quite a different story because you. You can't just spin up a mobile device that is available through the web. It's something kind of very special. And so we did find a service called Appetize that does this. And so we hooked up the CI pipeline to show preview apps in pull requests. So for every pull request, you could see specifically what was introduced in a pull request uh, without having to pull down the source code, like compile it. You could just cl- click a link and you see a click like an NVC stream of uh, um, a mobile device and that application running on a mobile device. So the setup took a little bit of time, but once we actually put it, you know, put it in place and we showed it to our clients, one of the things that we noticed is that like it became a, a topic of conversation. Like, it was like, oh, preview apps are amazing. Oh, this is so cool. This is actually really like the, the preview apps are like really great. And I think in some ways it actually surprised us because we knew that they were great, but I, I don't think I think it was one of the first times that we encountered a situation where we would show something to a client and they just like loved it. And it wasn't it, right. it wasn't like an app feature. It was a CI feature. It was a, a part of a development process. Right. You know. So the question is then is like why was this so revelatory? Why was it so inspiring to them? And I think that the reason is that even if we have an agile process and we're on you know two week iterations, one week iterations, whatever, there's still a macroscopic waterfall process going on because you know essentially you're your business people, your design people, you know, maybe some of your engineering people are are involved at the very front of the conversation. And, you know, there there there's a lot of, you know, talking and everybody's on the same page and then we we start introducing coding cycles, right? And even like I said, even if there we're working on two week iterations and we're, you know, we're quote unquote agile, the only feedback that you actually have whether something is working is if the coder says it's done. Right. So I'm done with this feature. I'm on to the next feature for the next two weeks. And after that two weeks, it's like, I'm done with this feature. I'm on to the next feature. You know, from the initial design, you have the expectation about what's going on in, you know, the the non-technical stakeholders minds. They have they have this expectation, which is really and then they hope that through the process of this agile iterative development cycles, they will get the outcome that satisfies that hope. Right. But they're not able to actually perceive and put their hands on it. It's only the engineers and maybe some really tech-savvy engineering managers who can actually perceive it. And so they're getting information secondhand. Oh, you know, hey, we've got authentication working and we can see this screen and that screen. And hey, it works on iOS now. Uh, got to have some, I have some, you know, fix-ups that I need to do on Android. So, you know, maybe they're consuming all of their information through stand-ups or something like that, which is better than nothing, right? You know, that is a level of transparency. But the problem is, is then you get to actually releasing the app or whether it's on the web, whether it's on native, but this is a really a problem on native. You get to where you actually release the app and then everybody gets to perceive the way the app as it actually is. So you have this expectation and this hope that was set maybe months prior, and it just comes absolutely careening into reality in an instant, the very first moment that you open the app when it's been released, right? And if it doesn't 
meet that expectation, that's when you get disappointment, right? When, when expectations are out of sync and grossly out of sync with reality, even a little bit out of sync with reality, you get disappointment, right? As fundamental an explanation of just the phenomenon of disappointment, but it's an explanation of why disappointment happens so often on development projects is this kind of the, the expectations and hopes of what a system can be in the minds of the stakeholders, you know, is kind of this probability cloud that collapses to a single point in an instant. And, the, and that's when, when things really, <laughs> that's when these things really hit the, the proverbial, the proverbial uh, fan, <laughs> right? Because, right. right. you know, that's, that's when you're actually, so now you've got this, so you got the, you have the opposite. So everything that was not transparent, right, about your development process. So everything, all of everything that, that was hidden in the opaqueness of, of your development process, all of those problems that, you know, either on a product side, it could be maybe sl- something didn't quite get implemented the way it's supposed to, like you actually found out two weeks or three weeks before you're supposed to release that that feature wasn't actually quite implemented right. You know, it went through testing, mm-hmm. but it was implemented, it was tested against like Jira stories that were maybe not quite written correctly. So the product people are going like, what the hell is this? This is actually not what I like signed up for. This is not what I was asking for. Right. So there's that part. And then on the, on the development side, you've got all of the little problems that you didn't really account for because you have been shipping to production from day one. You actually have like application not really quite working right. Like it's, it, you didn't account. It's supposed to integrate with some system that is using cores or something you didn't account for. Like you have a third party dependency you didn't really fully understand, but because it's not, it wasn't until you actually turned it on that you actually start to like talking to the thing properly and they realize there's some mismatch that is not quite working. But now you've got everything that was not transparent about your development process, everything that was hiding in the like opaque corners of your development process is now your problem for the next three weeks because you gotta fix all of these problems before you release. Right. And that's what I think where a lot of the a lot of organizations kind of find themselves in is this position where um you know they've uh, they've been operating for six months and like ooh everything is going great. And then three months, <laughs> three weeks before you're like, actually, you know, this is not really what we were supposed to do. Why did this happen? Like that time is really tough. Yeah. That's what we, there's a, that's what we call crunch time. And it's actually something that is, you know, a lot of times we think of it as inevitable, but in fact, it is actually an artifact of an opaque process. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the time when we have to go, you know, everybody's like, we're, you know, we're ordering pizza and Dr. Pepper and nobody's leaving for a month. Yeah. I I think, I think I can get, uh, I think there, there, there are people that do, if if people that do, um, that practice like functional testing as part of the development process, you know, or accessibility, uh, acceptance testing, I think they could relate to this in some cases where if you had to set up a test suite on an application that was written without a test suite, first thing you deal with are all the problems that you didn't even know are there. And it's not until you actually start testing, like doing functional testing, like not, not integration or, or um, unit testing, where you're t- testing everything in isolation. But when you're, but when you're perceiving the entire system as one big system and you're testing each one of those things as the user would, it's not until that point you start to notice all the weird problems that, that you have like race conditions, you have your views are re-rendering more than you expected. You have like, right. you know, you have things that are being rendered you didn't even notice, you know, because it's hard to see what, because it happens so quickly, but in tests it happens at a different pace. And so, so there's all these, these problems that you start to observe the moment that you start doing ex- acceptance testing. But 
you don't see them otherwise. And so it's, it's, it's the process of making something transparent that actually highlights all these problems. But mm-hmm. for the most part, if you don't know that the transparent option is available, you actually never realize that, that you are having these problems until you are in, in crunch time. Right. And what's interesting is viewed through that lens, your test suite is a tool for perception and to provide that transparency, not necessarily something that ensures quality. Ensuring the quality is a side effect of being able to perceive bugs as they happen uh, or perceive integration issues at the soonest possible juncture, right? To shine the light, so to speak, rather than to act as a filter. It's a subtle distinction, but I think it's an important one. Yeah, so about functional testing and acceptance testing, I think one of the things that I yeah, I know personally from um, experience working with like extensively comprehensive acceptance test suites is that there is certain certainty that you get by expressing the behavior of the application in your tests. And I think what what that certainty does is it replaces hope. Right. So as opposed to having hope baked into your system where you think like you're hoping, you know, I think for most, for many people, they don't even perceive it as hope. They perceive it as reality. Like they see it as, um, this, but my application works this way. But really what's, what's happening is there's a lot of trust that's built into that where you have to say like, yeah, you know, it's, uh, I believe the system should work because I wrote it and I'm good and it should not be broken. But you, unless you have a mechanism that actually verifies this and actually like ensures this is the case, you're operating in the area of dreams and hopes and, and wishes, not necessarily reality. And I think that's one of the things that's different. Like a lot of the processes around highlighting or, you know, shining light on the opaque areas um, of the development process. And it's actually not even just development process. It's actually the business process of running a development organization. Shining light in those areas is then what gives you the opportunity to replace hope with real, validatable truth about your circumstances. Right. And so, and, and making it so that anyone can answer that question and discover that truth and discover that reality for themselves. Yeah. So, so generating the artifacts, putting them out there, and then letting anybody be the, the, the primary perceiver of what that artifact means in the context uh, of the business, not just developers. Um, and so that kind of really explains preview apps quite neatly, doesn't it? It, it you know, here we've, we've, we've done some work. We are proposing a change. What are the artifacts that explain the ramifications of this change? So we run the test suite, right? That's one of the artifacts that explains and radiates the information so that, you know, People can be their own primary source uh, and look at it. Now, tests are, are developer-centric. And, you know, although, you know, you can tell, any old person can tell if the test suite's failing, it's not so, so a change that we should go with. But, you know, the preview app is something we've, we take this hypothetical change, we build it, we put it out there, and, you know, now everyone can perceive it. And so it calibrates the perception of reality. And yeah, it eliminates hope, uh, which is like, if your development process is based on hope, you are signing yourself up for disaster. Because I, I, you know, I like what you said, that it implies a huge amount of trust in the development team. And you know what? If you have a crack development team, 
Like that trust is earned and people will continually invest based on that trust. But the fundamentals are still fragile because there still can open up a crack between the expectation and the reality. And the problem is when that happens, the trust is destroyed, right? And you, and it's during that crunch time, you know, if it does happen that you lose credibility and it's not because you became a worse developer, right? It's not because your team is like lower performing, you know, it's just that there was this divergence allowed to open, but then the problem is that really lowers the trust. And that means that unfortunately that's going to have a negative knock-on effect, right? And reasonably so, right? Because if you're an engineering manager or product manager, something like this, and you know, you're losing trust in the in your development team and their ability to deliver what you talked about, then you're gonna to want to micromanage them more. Right, you're going to want to. The natural inclination is to try and you know be very defensive and interventionist, and you might actually introduce a set of practices that inhibit the development cycle even further and lower the team's abilities to perform right when they need to do it the most. Then you end up destroying more trust. Yeah, it's it's, it's a spiraling effect, I think, right? Because you're it's in the process of trying to make things better. Then you you start to introduce practices like maybe you're going to have meetings every day, reviewing outstanding stories to try to get everybody on the same page. But now you're micromanaging development team. The team development team starts to resent that, and now you've got this like people hating their job, and you know it just starts to get messier and dirtier and and more complicated. And the root cause of that is that. From day one, there was a lot of just gun honus about getting into it and just getting starting to write some code. But we didn't actually do is you didn't put in place the fundamentals of, make, of making sure that you can all observe a reality that is honest. And I think that that fu- kind of fundamental principle, I think it's interesting how when you actually start to kind of take this idea and like, you start to think about it like in different use cases, like it actually tells you a lot about what's going on and you can actually use it to design uh, design new solutions. Like, So one of the things that Frontside does, and I don't know if, if those who kind of worked with us before, you might, you might know this, might not, but we don't do blended rates anymore, right? Because we don't actually, one of the challenges with blended rates is that they hide the nuance that gives you the power to choose how to solve a problem. Yeah, man, I, there's a whole blog post that needs to be written on why blended rates are absolute poison for a consultancy. But the, the, this is the principle of why. Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's poison for a transparent consultancy, right? Because if you're exactly, yeah, because yeah. if you if you want to get the benefits of transparency, you have to be transparent about your people. Because alternatively, what happens is that you start off relying on your company's reputation. And then, like, there is a kind of inherent lie in the way that the price points are set up because everybody knows that there is going to be a few senior people, there's going to be a few intermediate people, and a few junior people, right? But the exact ratios of those or who is doing what, how much people are available, all of those things are kind of hidden inside of the, uh, inside of the consulting company so that they can manage their resources internally. And so what that does, it simplifies your communication with the client, but actually what it also does, it disempowers you to have certain difficult conversations when you need the most. And you could say, look, for this kind of work, we don't need to have, you know, we don't need to have our most senior people working on this. We can have someone who is junior, who is at like, let's say, you know, a hundred bucks an hour, $75 an hour, as opposed to being, you know, 200, $250 an hour. We can have that person working on this and we can actually like 
very clearly define how certain work gets solved. It requires more work, but then what it does, it creates a, a really strong bond of honesty and transparency between you and your clients. And that gives you a way like the, now the client starts to think, it can start thinking about you as a resource that allows you, allows them to fulfill on their obligations in a very actionable way. Like they can now think about how they can, the, how they can use you as a resource to solve their problems. They don't need a filter that will process that and like try to make it work within the organization. You essentially kind of become one unit, right? And, and I think that sense of unity is the fundamental piece that keeps consulting companies and clients glued together, right? It's, it's, it's the, the sense of like, we can rely on this team to give us exactly what we want when we need it and sometimes give us what we, what we need that we don't know we need. Right. But that bond is there and that bond is never, it, that bond is strong because you, because there is no lie in that relationship. You're very transparent about who are the people that's working on it? What are they actually going to be doing? How much is this costing us? You know, it's worth calling out explicitly whether on the flip side of it is, is if you have a blended rate, which is the way that Frontside operated for, gosh, pretty much forever, is that people will naturally calibrate towards your, uh, most senior people, right? If I'm going to be paying $200 an hour across the board or $150 an hour across the board or $300 across the board, whatever the price point is, they're going to want to extract the most value for that one price point. And so it means that they're going to expect the most senior people, right? And become resentful if like, if what I'm paying is 300 for a task, if I've got five senior people, you know, it's, it's a better deal for me. I'm for the same price to get five senior people then two senior people, two uh, medium level people, and one junior person, and so it it does two two terrible effects. One is that they don't appreciate the senior people, right? To be like, hey, actually, you know, these are people with extraordinary experience, extraordinary knowledge, extraordinary capability that are going to kick start your part. So they are underappreciated, and then they're extremely resentful of the junior people, right? It's like, I'm paying the same rate for this very senior person as I am for this junior person. Like, get this person off my project, right? But if you say, well, you know what? We're going to charge a fifth of the cost for this junior person because, and, and we're going to utilize them in the test and you're providing real value and they're appreciating. They're like, oh, thank you for saving me so much money. Like we've got this task that does not require your most senior person. That would be a misallocation of funds. I'd be wasting money on them. But if you can charge me less and give me this junior person and they're going to do just as competent a job, but it's going to cost me a fifth of the money, then that's a great, thank you. Right. So it, it flips the conversation from, you know, get this goddamn junior person off my project to thank you so much for bringing this person on. Right. So critical. But that's that's what that transparency can provide. It can totally turn a feeling of resentment into gratitude. So what's interesting is from business perspective, the like you make the same amount of money. In some cases, you actually make more money, I think, in, in that way as a consulting company. But that's not the important part that because the amount of value that's generated from having more granular visibility into what's happening is so much greater. It's kind of like, you know, with testing with any of those things where when you start to put when you start to shine light on these kind of opaque areas and then you start to kind of flush out the gremlins that are hiding there what you then start to do what you what you kind of discover is this opportunity to have relationships with clients that are honest so you could say for example 
you know, like one of the things that we've done recently is we actually have a 10 tier price point model, right? Which allows us to, uh, to be really flexible about the kind of people that we introduce. So there's a lot of details that go into the actual, uh, contracting negotiation, but what it does, it allows us to be very honest about the costs and, uh, and work together with our clients is to like actually really find a solution that's going to work really well for them. And, and, and then this kind of, is a starting point. Like when you start thinking about transparency in this in this kind of diverse way, you actually start to realize that there are additional benefits that you, that you might have never been experienced before. So, like one of the things that we found recently is that one of the initiatives that we kind of launched with with with, with a lot of our clients is we wanted to bring together. There's a, there's a general problem that exists in in large projects, which is that if you have a really big company and you have like you know, let's say 20 or 30 interconnected services, like there's, you have your data domain, like the, all the data kinds of data you work with is spread over a whole bunch of microservices, spread over potentially a bunch of different uh, development teams, spread over a bunch of different locations. So there's, so what usually has happened in the past is each one of those problems or the, the, the domain, the data domain has been has been kind of siloed into a specific application. So like, you know, we worked with a bank in the past and that bank had for every, they had 80 countries in each country. They had 12 different industries like insurance and mortgage and, uh, you know, different, different kinds of areas of services they offered. And then for each of the country, for each of the service, they had a different application that provided that functionality. Then the next step is, okay, now let's, okay, let's not do that anymore because we now have something like, you know, we had something like a hundred and 150 apps. Let's, bring it all together under a single umbrella and let's create a single kind of shared domain that we can then use. And so like a GraphQL becomes a great solution for that. But the problem is that making that change is crazy complicated because you have the people on the business side who understand how all the pieces fit together. On the other side, you have the developers who are, who know how the, where that data can come from and how to make all of that real. And the other side is there's like front end implementers who are actually building the UIs that are consuming all these services. So yeah, on, the, on the project that we're working on right now is where we are building a federated GraphQL gateway layer that is kind of connecting all these things, bringing all these things together. But the problem is that without very specific tooling to enable that that kind of coming together of the front end, the back end, the business people having coming together, creating a single point of conversation and having a single point of reference for for all the different kind of uh, different data that that we have to work with and different data that is available to the gateway without having something like that without having that transparency in the actual data model it is really difficult to make progress because you don't have sh- shared terminology you don't have shared understanding of the of the scope of the problem you d- you don't have a point of like y- there's a lot of dots in context that needs to be connected and for anyone who's worked with enterprise you know how big this problem how big these problems get right and so what we've done on the project that uh, that we're working on now is we actually like aimed to bring transparency to this process right so what we actually did is put put in place like start start to build a an application that brings together all of the federated services into a visualization that different parties can be involved in and so i think one of the kind of common patterns that we see with transparency in general is that we are including people in the process in the development process that were previously not not included so in, in the past, their opinion would not matter, or it would be they would be involved in the process either very early on or very late in the process, but they wouldn't be involved along the way. And so 
what um, this kind of transparency practices, what it actually does, it it allows us to kind of democratize and flatten the process of of creating foundations for pieces that that touch many different parts of the organization. And so this uh, this tool that we start we we created allows us uh, allows everyone to be involved in the process of creating the data model that spans the entire organization and then have a single point of reference that everybody can go to and they have a process for contributing to it and they don't they don't have to be a developer there's developers who consume it there are uh, business people that consume it there are uh, data modeling people that consume it like there's different people parties involved but the end result is that everyone is on the same page about what it is that they're creating and we, we're seeing the same kind of response as we saw with preview apps where people who are who previously didn't really have an opinion on development practices or or how something gets built, all of a sudden are participating in the conversation and actually making really value, valuable suggestions that developers couldn't really have exposure to previously because developers often don't have the context necessary to understand why something gets implemented in a particular way. Something beautiful to behold, really. And like, like I said, it's it's wonderful when a simple concept reveals things that had lay hidden before. Yeah, it's a, it's really it's a very interesting lens, you know, to look at things through, right? It's like how how transparent is this, and how can we make it more transparent? I think ask you know asking that question and answering that question is what what has been kind of giving us um, a lot of it's been very helpful in understanding understanding our challenges in the work that we do on a daily basis, and also understanding like how we could actually make it better. Right. I mean, I, I apply this concept in action on my pull requests. Um, I've really been focusing on trying to make sure that if you look at my pull request, like before you actually look at the code, you can pretty much understand what I've done before you even look at the diff. The hallmark of a good pull request is basically if by reading the conversation, you understand what the implementation is going to be. Like there's, there's not really any surprises there. It's actually hard to achieve that. Same thing with Git history. Spending a lot of time trying to think like, how can I provide the most transparent Git history? That doesn't necessarily mean exactly the log of what happened moment to moment, day to day, but making sure that your history presents a clear story of how the application has evolved. And sometimes that involves a lot of rebasing and merging and branch management. Um, I think area another area that has been new for us, which this has uh, revealed those things that I just described are areas where you know we're kind of reevaluating already accepted principles against a new measure, but introducing an RFC process to uh, actually a, a client project, right? Where you know we're making architectural decisions with our developers, the clients' developers, external consultants. Like you've got a lot of different parties all of whom need to be on the same page about the architectural decisions that you've made. You know, why are we doing this this way? Why are we doing modals this way? Why are we using this style system? Why uh, are we using routing in this way? Why are we doing testing like this? You know, these are decisions that are usually made in an ad hoc basis to satisfy an immediate need, right? It's like, hey, we need to do state management. Let's you know, let's bring in Redux or let's bring in MobX or let's, you know, bring in, you know, whatever. And you want to hire experts to help you make that best ad hoc decision? Well, not really. I mean, you want to lean on your, their experience to, to make the best decision. But having a way of saying, of recording and saying, this is the rationale for a decision 
that we are about to make to fulfill a need. And then having a record of that and putting it down in the books so that anybody who can come later, first of all, when the discussion is happening, everybody can understand the process that's going on, you know, in uh, the development team's head. And then afterwards is particularly important is, you know, someone asks a question, why is this thing this way? You can point directly to an RFSA. And this is something that we picked up from the Ember community. But this is something that open source projects really, by their very nature, have to operate in a very highly transparent manner. Um, and so it's no surprise that that process came from the, the internet and the open, uh, an open source project. Um, but it's been remarkably effective, I would say, in, in achieving consensus and making sure that you know, people are satisfied with decisions especially if they come on afterwards, after they've been made. And we, we actually have this have like this particular benefit, the experience of particular benefit today, where one of the other things that this RFC process and transparency by the architecture, like how that kind of benefits the development organization is that a lot of times when you're knee deep in doing some implementation, that is not a time that you want to be doing, you want to be having architectural conversations. You know, in the same way, like, the, you know, a, a football team, like they huddle up, before they go on a field, like you can't be talking strategy while an architecture and like plans yeah. while you're on a football field, right? You have to be ready, like you have to be ready to play. And this is one of the things that uh, the kind of the RFC process does. It allows us to say, look, right now we have a process for managing architecture. So that the RFC process, you could go review, uh, review our accepted RFCs. You can make proposals there. That is different process than the process that we're involved in on a daily basis, which is, you know, writing application using architecture that we already have in place. And so that in itself can be really helpful because that can be well-intentioned people can bring up these conversations because they really are trying to solve a problem, but that might not be the best time. And so having that, having that kind of process in place and being transparent about how architecture decisions are made allows everyone to participate and it also allows you to prioritize conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's been, and, and, you know, we were guided that that wasn't a practice that we had adopted previous to this, but it's something that seemed obvious that we should be doing. Uh, it's like, how can we make our architecture more transparent? Well, let's, let's do this practice. So, you know, I keep harping on this, but I think it's the hallmark of a good idea if it leads you to new, to new practices and new tools. Um, and we're actually thinking about adopting the RFC process for all of our internal development. Yeah. For maintaining our open source libraries. There was there was something actually so there is something that we've been working on that I think like we're really excited about so there's a lot of stuff happening at Frontside but one of the things that we've been doing is uh, working on something we call the the transparent node publishing process which is something that we I think we originally drew inspiration from the way NativeScript has their repo set up but one thing that's really cool about how they have things set up is that every pull request automatically is available to like they publish like everything is available like, very quickly any pull request is available for you to play with and you can actually like put it into your application as a published version in npm and actually see exactly if that pull request is going to work for you like you don't have to jump through hoops like we don't you don't have to you know clone the repo do build, like, it, build link it locally it. link it yeah you don't have to do any of that stuff because if you you see a pull request that has something that you want but that is not available in master there's an instruction on the pull request that tells you, here's how you can install this particular version using from, from NPM. And so you're essentially publishing every pull request automatically gets published to NPM. And you, 
can just download, like install that specific version for that particular uh, particular pull request in your project. That in itself, I think, is like it's one of those things I suspect that is going to. We've talked about this, but it it actually can alleviate a lot of problems that we have in our development processes because. Like the availability of the work that's being that's of people who are participating to the project, there is a kind of a built-in barrier that we are essentially breaking down with this transparent uh, node publishing process, and so that's that's something like we're very close to um, to having it all to, to have it on all of our repos, and we're going to try it out and then uh, hopefully you know share it with with everyone on the internet. I didn't know that uh, NativeScript did this. I think I thought we drew it, the, the the idea came from it is like how can we apply these transparency principles to the way we maintain npm packages, right? Like we need to the, the release the entire release process should be completely transparent, uh, so that you know when I make a pull request, it's available immediately in a comment, and then furthermore, even when a pull request is merged, there's no separate step of you know, let's get someone to, to publish it. It's just now it's on master. Now it is available as a production release. You know, so there's no, you, you, you close the latency and you close the gap and, and people perceive things as they are. There's nothing like, oh, that emerged. When do I get this? This is something that I can't stand about using public packages uh, is, you know, you have some issue. You find out that someone also has had this issue. They've submitted a pull request for it. And then it's impossible to find if you can, like, if there's a version and what version actually supports this. And it's even more complex between projects that actually do backporting of fixes to other versions. So I might be on version two of a project. Version three is the most recent one, but I don't, I can't upgrade to version three because I might be dependent on some version two APIs, but I really need this fix. Well, has it been, you know, has it been backported? I don't know. Maybe upgrading is what I have to do, but maybe downgrading. Or if I'm on the same major release version, maybe, you know, there's been 10 pull requests, but there's been no release to NPM. And it can be shockingly difficult to find out if something is even publicly available. And the transparency principle comes in to, hey, if I see it on GitHub, if I see it there, then it's, there's, it's, there's something there that I can touch and I can perceive for myself to see if my issue's been resolved or if the things work as I expect. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I'm really excited about this kind of clarification, this this crystallization of transparency, and then now also seeing our clients uh, uh, starting to apply it to to solving problems within their organization as well is is very it's inspiring. Yeah, it is. It is really exciting, and I'm just honestly, I'm looking. You know, we've got. I feel like we've got. What are those little triangular sticks that people use to find water? I feel like we've got a the divination. We have a divination stick. Uh, and I'm I'm really excited to see what new tools and practices actually that it predicts and and leads us to. Me too. I'm really excited to hear if if, if anyone uh, you know likes this idea, send, send us a tweet and let us know you know what what you're seeing for yourself about this because I think it's a really interesting topic and uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot that people can use can do with this idea in general. Well, thank you for listening. If you or someone you know has something to say about building user interfaces that simply must be heard, please get in touch with us. We can be found on Twitter at at the frontside or over just plain old email at contact at frontside.io. Thanks and see you next time.